Hey everybody, Corey here. Before this episode of Penknife begins, we'd plan to hit you up with one of those shameless requests for money. And while we'd be very grateful to anyone who wants to contribute to our Patreon, our main need right now is for you listeners to help us promote Penknife. The best way you can do that would be to press pause right now and go and rate us on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on whatever platform you're using to listen to us right now. Likewise, it'd be great if you could follow us and share a Penknife post on your social media. And most importantly, tell your friends. Okay, enough begging. Without further ado, here's the episode. How did you meet her? She lived in my building. Then it was by accident. Not exactly. There were several hundred tenants in the building. It's a whole city block long, you know. And I had listened into the voices of a considerable number of them. Her voice was among the voices. What do you mean, among the voices? I mean their voices, you see. I signed my lease when the building was still under construction, and I was able to wander around the unfinished apartments. At that time I was interested in electronics. In all the apartments on my floor, and on the two floors directly beneath, I concealed a miniature microphone, which also acted as a transmitter. The device was no larger than a button, yet it picked up every sound and could transmit a signal for a quarter of a mile. I installed a specially designed radio in my apartment with which I could receive transmissions at any time I chose, and so I listened to their voices. But that's incredible. How did you get those microphones? The same way everybody else does. They're advertised in magazines and sold by mail order. My name is Corey Eastwood, and I'm a bookseller and failing writer, and I admit, I sometimes derive some perverse pleasure out of hearing my neighbors bicker. And I'm Santiago Lemoine, a bookseller and failing writer, and nowadays I'm too busy listening to podcasts to overhear my neighbors' arguments. Today in episode 7, we'll learn all about Jerzy Kaczynski and Norman Mailer's foray into literary superstardom, and the books and bad behavior that got them there. This is Penknife podcast about writers who may or may not have written about crime, but who definitely committed it. No, you definitely should not blame the alcohol. The booze just brings it all to the surface. It's just another great revealer. Burroughs is sure that drunk or sober, this pathetic translator creature, endlessly swirling his scotch as he slithers about the literary conference, complaining and stammering on and on about his petty woes is more lizard than human. A moist residue camouflaged in the trappings of humanity, stuck in his tiny world of borrowed words. But to what end? What is so great about being human? Burroughs looks around the room of drunken writers. He's come all the way to Edinburgh for what? Shapes, noises, affectations, but not a single person. Henry Miller, Mary McCarthy, Lawrence Durrell, Norman Mailer, Sonia Orwell, and William S. Burroughs. Writers, editors, wordsmiths. But these are no people. No, not really, not yet. And least of all, William S. Burroughs. Look at us. Look at little big man Mailer over there. 
the naive latecomer, the so-called prophet of hip, preaching his own made-up religion. He's pure anger. And booze, of course, but mostly anger. Anger is ego, damaged ego and insecurity, and the alcohol just amplifies the sounds of the ego's collapse. Burroughs can almost hear it, the internal wrath reverberating like in an echo chamber behind Norman's narrow blue eyes, forever growing until it'll have nowhere to go but out. No, these are not humans, least of all old William S. Burroughs himself. He can feel the weight of the years and the pains and the joys of existence piling up on his shoulders. But there's no need to talk about them, because in the end they amount to nothing. Burroughs won't talk about it, not like that, not like them. But then why is he here in Edinburgh, giving speeches and behaving like the celebrated author? How long can he carry on, southbound and then northbound, running away and shedding skin after skin, dropping habits and losing sentences only to create new ones? But trouble has a way of catching up. It always does. And so Burroughs here in London or Edinburgh, changing skins, losing good words and bad habits and picking up new ones. And when it was his turn to speak into the microphone, they all just listened quietly. And he took the opportunity to draw the audience's attention to the Nova, fueled by words and substances with its blinding light burning through space and time, revealing obscenity and sickness, drug, sex, control and censorship. But that doesn't matter because he had a solution. Hoard words, cut up, fold in. Put the scissor, the scalpel and the razor to work and proceed to incise, slit and lacerate. Write, but write without writing. Write the way people used to make maps. But turn inwards and stare endlessly at the mirror until mountains surge in the background and vast oceans take over the cities. Stare at the mirror until tentacles grow from your fingers and then chop them off. And write. Write until your own body metamorphosizes. Write yourself into humanity. Or just cut yourself out of it. That's what he told them. Back in this very room, Burroughs just observes and keeps quiet. The pathetic lizard translator whines to Sonia crawling closer and closer, his wet forked tongue spewing wet words into her ear. And the little big man rages. For a man so concerned with words, he does not spare them, which is as admirable as it is ridiculous. Mailer is fighting with himself, just like everyone else, and Burroughs can clearly see that he lives both in constant fear and anticipation of the whole room turning on him. But now he falls silent, the anger too big to stay contained, and by the time he points at the lizard on the floor, Burroughs already knows what's about to happen. He can see it in his mind's eye, as clear as the light of a star exploding on a moonless sky. Little Big Man's about to pick the lizard up from the floor, drag him outside, and silently, finally, silently, pull him over his shoulder and launch him off the landing. No more slithering. The lizard will now take flight. And that is exactly what happened at a literary conference in Edinburgh in 1962. Mailer had had enough of the translator who had the nerve to hit on Sonia Orwell, and he dealt with it by tossing him down five flights of stairs. 
Melo then went back to the party and resumed drinking with his fellow riders without a second thought for the translator, who, after a few minutes, climbed back upstairs bleeding profusely from various wounds, but whining no longer. Recalling the event years later, Melo said glibly, I could have killed him. And yes, we're talking about that Norman Mailer, the man who was still on parole for the brutal stabbing of his second wife. The man who attempted to explain the crime by saying that A decade's anger made me do it. After that, I felt a whole lot better. We're talking about a criminal who was barely punished by the law and completely forgiven by the intellectual elite. A man who, helped in part by his brief marriage to Lady Jean Campbell, a British journalist and socialite, kept on climbing the social ladder with total impunity. A writer who was encouraged to keep publishing articles and books, even while having the audacity to fictionalize the assault in his next novel. Somehow, that same Norman Mailer not only got a pass for his crimes and continued to nearly kill people, but his career thrived. The 60s was the decade where he found his sweet spot between literature and journalism and became the legendary, combative, and long-winded writer we remember, but rarely read, today. In the autumn of 1966, fresh off the success of The Painted Bird, Kaczynski called up his pal Peter Skinner and asked him to help compose his new novel. Skinner had been one of the final editors of The Painted Bird, and while working together on that project, he gained Kaczynski's trust. As a result, Jersey decided to spare himself the hassle of cobbling together different editors, and work almost exclusively with Skinner on the new novel. Thus, his authorial team would be much smaller than last time, and consist of only three main members. Kaczynski, the ideas guy, Peter Skinner, the words man, and Kiki von Fraunhofer, the secretary-slash-girlfriend. In January of that year, the marriage to millionaire Mary Weir ended amicably, with Jersey getting some Prince of Wales suits, a Bentley, a Lincoln Continental, and possibly, though this has never been verified, a $300,000 trust fund. Mary just got to keep her acute alcoholism, which was already in its last throes and would take her life two years later. By the time of the divorce, Jersey had already begun seeing Kiki, an advertising executive and descendant of Bavarian aristocrats, who would go on to become his next and final wife. While their relationship began like most do, you know, holding hands, love notes, cuddling, and yeah, sex, Jersey quickly tired of her in the bedroom, and Kiki soon took on the role of another mother-like figure. A mother who doubled as a secretary and slept on the couch to keep space in the bed open for whoever her husband might drag home. Kaczynski was always extremely protective of his manuscripts, and throughout his career, he never let any of his editors slash ghostwriters take them home with them. Thus, all the work for the new novel was done in Kaczynski's cramped one-bedroom apartment on East 79th Street. There, he and Peter Skinner would spend long days, Kaczynski pacing and dictating, Skinner typing, structuring, and clarifying. They always played music while they worked, often Herp Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. I can just picture Jersey flipping through his record collection, once again pulling out the infamous Whipped Cream album as if he's never seen it before, then asking, What do you say we try this one today? Kiki was not invited to these sessions, but she was invited, indeed expected, to show up and work dutifully through the night, 
piecing together all the notes and changes in order to have a clean manuscript ready for the men when they began their writing session the next day. In late 1963, Mailer, now 40 years old, realized that for a writer who insisted on being called a novelist, he hadn't written one in almost a decade. And so he signed a deal with Esquire to publish a serialized novel over a period of eight or nine months. No, he was not going to write the whole book and then chop it up in order to get it out in neat little chapters. Of course not. Our champ, like Dostoevsky and Dickens before him, was to write 10,000 words a month and publish them with the ink still wet on the first drafts. He'd get himself a nice fat check from Esquire and then another for revising it and publishing it in book form. Many doubted his ability to pull it off, and for Mailer, that was all the motivation he needed. And so Norman got to work. Essays and journalism, or ranting screeds and advertisements for himself, had become his favorite mediums, so he decided that the style and rhythm of the novel should replicate that of his articles. Frantic and filled with action, but often interrupted by philosophical musings and, of course, crammed with big words and written in meandering rococo sentences. But what to write about? Well, he'd mind his own experience, of course, and perhaps even include the one that no one would dream they have the balls to touch. Would he dare fictionalize the stabbing of Adele? Hell. In real life, he'd come close to killing her, but on the page, he'd go all the way. Mailer's serialized novel is called An American Dream, and it charts a few days in the life of Stephen Rojak, a World War II veteran, Harvard graduate, former congressman, and talk show host, the personification of the American Dream, and of course, the stand-in for Norman. The first chapter includes a graphic depiction of a drunken Rojak strangling his wife to death after she belittles his manhood. Yep, pretty similar to Mailer's attack on Adele. But in the book, Rojak's wife is a high society woman, and more of a barely veiled portrait of Mailer's third wife, Lady Jean Campbell, whom he'd recently divorced. Immediately after killing his wife, Stephen Rojak goes downstairs and walks in on the German maid, who's masturbating to a pornomag despite the fact, or perhaps because, she's just heard Rojak's wife shouting in terror as he murdered her. Without a word, he gets on the bed sticks his toes inside of her, and then sodomizes her against her will. He describes the act as, quote, plugging a Nazi, and no, this is not meant to be surrealist smut. It's written in the loftiest possible literary language and supposed to be taken very seriously. Anyhow, with murder and rape under his belt in the first 45 pages, Rojak then gets to work on trying to get away with his crimes. His first move is to return to his dead wife's body, toss her out the window, then argue that she committed suicide because, you guessed it, she just found out she had cancer. Yes, that metaphor again. Before this opening scene ends, we see Rojak still drunk and doing a bad job at feigning devastation as he heads down to the street where his wife's body has fallen, causing both an accident and a massive traffic jam. Amongst the onlookers, he notices a Marilyn Monroe-esque blonde, a nightclub singer, with whom he makes eyes. 
That night, after Rojak is released from the police station for lack of immediate evidence, he and the singer get together. She, by the way, is a mixture of sorts between Mailer's fourth and fifth wives, Beverly and Carol. They have sex and Mailer, excuse me, Rojak, who also turns out to be terrific in bed, gifts her her very first vaginal orgasm. <gasps> All seems to be going well, except for the fact that she's got a somewhat jealous ex-lover, a black jazz musician not completely dissimilar to Miles Davis, who was still dating Beverly when Mailer first seduced her. Norman never dare fight Miles, but in the book, Rojak beats the shit out of the former boyfriend and poetically throws him down the stairs. Take that, Miles. More preposterous adventures follow, and, in the end, Rojak heads west, then wanders south of the border, finally free from that pesky metaphorical cancer. When Kaczynski left Kiki in his apartment at night, he'd go out and do his thing, which then meant hitting Times Square for peep shows and prowling the streets to pick up prostitutes. For Jersey, sex had always been much more than the physical act itself. He liked to watch, he liked to stage, to play and to experiment. The more perverse and bizarre, the better. When looking for prostitutes, he sought out those who would indulge his unorthodox kinks. One particularly twisted kink that absolutely no one could have liked was that he enjoyed bargaining sex workers down on their price. $20 is too much. Come on, baby, let's do it for $18. 18 is good money. What do you say? Come on, just this time. During Kaczynski and Skinner's marathon writing sessions, whenever the men were hungry, they'd call out for sandwiches. Yes, let me get uh, white fish with onion and rye, uh, pastrami and toasted white bread with extra mayo, two Cokes, and um, could you throw in a can of whipped cream as well? And when they were horny, which in Jersey's case happened to be all the time, he would ring one of the bevy of undergraduate Sarah Lawrence students he'd cultivated as groupies and tell her to come over. He'd then blow up an air mattress and place it on the floor next to the writing desk where the two men would have their way with her. When they were finished, they'd thank the woman, show her to the door, then clean up the whipped cream and deflate the air mattress before returning to work on that weird little novel they were constructing. How long did you listen to those voices, those people? For months, of course, at first I had difficulty identifying their voices. On my radio I could monitor one voice at a time, but I was not able to pinpoint the apartment it came from. I had to be very careful. For instance, I could not walk around the corridors for too long, waiting to see who came out of the apartments where I had hidden microphones. In trying to identify those I suspected, I had to be very casual starting conversations in the elevators and greeting people in the hallways. I spent almost three months attempting to match the voices with the people I supposed I had been listening to. But were you able to do this? Yes, I've identified all of them, but of course very few really interested me. I suppose the woman did. Yes, she had an apartment on my floor. I recognized her voice when she was greeting someone in the lobby. She was among those I had been listening to for a long time. What did you do? 
I stayed at home for several days and monitored her apartment. She lived alone and she didn't work. I could listen to her all morning when the other voices were away. If you were confused by what I just told you about an American dream, well, you should try reading it. On top of the ludicrous plot, Mailer also peppered the story with plenty of dreamlike sequences and philosophical outbursts. The result is a novel that is always outlandish, often tedious, but occasionally pretty good. That is, if you're judging it solely by its prose and not by the plot, which reads as if it were cooked up by a really, really insecure teenager who had an extremely warped view of manhood. You might even say it contains some brilliance. That is, if you're the type who likes bombastic and showy maximalist prose. I'm not, but hey, there were some people out there who loved it. Joan Didion somehow liked it so much she called it, quote, the only serious New York novel since The Great Gatsby. Others were not so generous. Elizabeth Hardwick wrote it was, quote, a fantasy of vengeful murder, callous copulations, and an assortment of dull cruelties. Though it wasn't quite the smash hit Mailer was hoping for, he was pleased with the novel and its reception. And the fact that it was clearly biographical just made him ever more certain that the only way to create extraordinary art was to live an extraordinary life. In the past, that meant enlisting to fight in World War II, fancying himself a revolutionary and, of course, living like a thug and stabbing his wife. But success threatened the outlaw persona and lifestyle he'd spent much of the previous decade cultivating. By the mid-60s, now in his early 40s, Mellor was featured in magazines and interviewed on TV more than just about any other public intellectual. He was living right smack dab in the center of high society, but his writing, he believed, necessitated that he exist on society's fringe. That's where real experience came from, and that's where he liked to think he truly belonged. Sure, he enjoyed the five-star hotels and fancy hors d'oeuvres, but not in the way all these tools and squares he spent most of his time with did. No, no. Norman, the original hipster, was only ironically playing at being bourgeois. He felt no guilt about being part of the establishment because part of him still convinced himself that he'd be the one to bring it all down. David Foster Wallace called Steps, the novel that Kaczynski and Skinner wrote between romps on the air mattress, quote, a collection of unbelievably creepy little allegorical tableau done in a terse, elegant voice that is like nothing else anywhere, ever. Only Kafka's fragments get anywhere close to where Kaczynski goes in this book, which is better than everything else he ever did combined. While I wouldn't call Steps better than everything else he ever did combined, as I think The Painted Bird is an important novel and Cockpit also has merit, I agree that it's his best book. It's surely his most Kaczynskian, in the sense that it sets the standard for the majority of his books to come. In a series of short, fable-like vignettes, Steps charts a perverse picaresque in which the Kaczynski stand-in leads us through a succession of bizarre encounters, many of which are autobiographical, and almost all of which involve sex, violence, and or sexual violence. The stories are very loosely held together by snippets of an eerie, disembodied dialogue between a man and a woman 
in which they probe their alienation as it relates to sex and relationships. How did you meet her? She lived in my building. Surrounded with by accident. Not exactly. There were several hundred tenants in the building. Steps opens with the narrator seducing a young peasant by dazzling her with his shiny credit cards, which he claims have the magical power of buying absolutely anything. In the next episode, he's stranded on a small island with no food or money, and has to sleep with two massively fat women in exchange for meat, fruit, and milk. In one vignette, the Jersey character sticks pieces of glass and rusty fish hooks into bread, which he then feeds to children. And in another, seemingly for the fun of it, he throws bottles at a night watchman in an abandoned factory, eventually hitting and killing him. Throughout these stories, the perspective on all the horrific violence and naughty behavior is one of near-complete detachment. While this shifts in some later novels, where the Kaczynski stand-ins sometimes recognize that morality exists, even if they choose to live amorally, in Steps, it's as if we're following the exploits of a genuinely alien being. Even when he's involved in terribly extreme situations, such as watching his girlfriend be gang-raped or being forced to behead a man, the voice, while occasionally referring to the presence of emotions, remains essentially deadpan and disassociative. It almost reads as if it had been written by someone pretending to be a human being. Steps was the first Kaczynski novel I read. When I picked it up, all I knew of Kaczynski were the tall tales my buddy Joseph Harms told me, and the impressions I've gleaned over the years of selling or mostly not selling his books. I remember the feeling I had during that first sitting with the book. I was disturbed, deeply disturbed. And after spending much of my late teens and early 20s reading all the, quote, transgressive fiction I could get my hands on, novels don't generally disturb me. But there was something utterly unique, otherworldly even, about steps. As I kept reading, I realized that part of the allure of the book was my inability to know what to make of it. I had no reference. I'd never seen anything like it. Was this man literally a psychopath? Do psychopaths write novels? In an age where just about nothing is shocking, where I feel as if I've read and seen most varieties of the taboo, the offensive, and the macabre, this book terrified me. I found it much more disturbing than Desaad, where when picking up one of his books, you more or less know what you're going to get. Yeah, sadism. But this wasn't quite that. I mean, it was sadistic as fuck, sure, but it was something else entirely. What was it? The hip revolution had failed. But with the civil rights movement finally gaining traction amongst white intellectuals and the anti-Vietnam War movement quickly becoming a force to be reckoned with, Mailer just wasn't going to sit on the sidelines and watch. Though he was no peacenik, He'd begun describing himself as a leftist conservative. He was against the war in a kind of convoluted, my opposition to the war is smarter than your opposition to the war, Norman Mailer kind of way. To stay relevant and to cash in on the revolutionary moment, he once again decided to put off his big novel and instead focus on current events. The high life, it turned out, was not cheap, and with five kids and soon to be four ex wives, money was becoming a pressing issue. And, as luck would have it, the golden opportunity 
to marry the intellectual and the rebel, or the writer Norman Mailer with the character Norman Mailer, presented itself on a silver platter when he heard about an upcoming march on the Pentagon, a massive anti-war protest that was all but guaranteed to give him some good material for an article. The protest did not disappoint. SNCC, SDS, the Yippies, they were all there. A hundred thousand strong showed up to listen to Phil Oakes shit on liberals, and then joined Abby Hoffman and Allen Ginsberg as they marched to the Pentagon and attempted to levitate it. A camera caught a young man placing carnations in the barrels of military police rifles, and Mailer could not have asked for better theatrics and imagery. This was flower power in full swing. He did his small part of the rally a few nights before the march by giving a drunken, slurred speech and calling himself the Prince of Bourbon. At the actual rally, he didn't last long, as he was one of the first to break through the perimeter around the Pentagon and, as planned, get arrested. The result of this somewhat manufactured experience in DC ended up being much more than an article. Part self-portrait, part journalism, part novel, Part historical account, The Armies of the Night is one of the masterpieces of new journalism. It took him just over two months to write, and the book went on to win him both the National Book Award and the Pulitzer for nonfiction. Twenty years after The Naked and the Dead, Norman Mailer was once again on top of the world. Kaczynski's biographer, James Park Sloan speculates that Kaczynski may have suffered from alexithymia, which is a psychological condition where one is unable to sufficiently identify their own or other people's emotions. Evidently, it's prevalent amongst Holocaust survivors, some of whom have displayed a diminished capacity for love. Sloan writes that, quote, they've sometimes been described as as-if personalities, in that their whole lives, and especially the romantic side of life, consists of going through the motions, as if they were actually living their experiences. People with alexithymia, like psychopaths, have a tough time giving a shit about other people's subjectivities. Whether or not Jersey suffered from this disorder, he definitely didn't treat people very well. In keeping with his Nicodema Dijme philosophy toward life, he was open about the fact that people were to be used for what they could give him and then discarded. This was of course most obvious with the women he used for sex, with the countless translators and editors who helped him with his writing in exchange for little to no credit, and with Kiki, who managed his life but had to sleep on the couch. Here's Roman Polanski talking about Jersey. He said that he, you know, he thought that love was something entirely um, um, invented that it really didn't exist for real, that those sentiments and feelings were, belonged to the poets and uh, um, was, he, he uh, had the same attitude towards it as I have, for example, towards superstition. He was also known to have a mean streak. There's a great anecdote from his Princeton teaching days. When a student brought him a feel-good, sentimental story and the kid said, I'm sure you won't like it, because in your work, people die. Kaczynski responded sternly, You know, the very first time I saw you, I got the feeling 
you were going to die young. In the past 20 years, I've had the same feeling about several people, and each time I've had it, they died. Of course, I could be wrong this time. Another time, the chronically underweight Kaczynski, who rarely ate, often surviving off fish sticks and frozen TV dinners, was in a restaurant eating only lettuce with raw onion and lemon, another regular meal of his, when he noticed a fat man eating what he thought was way too much food. He called over the waiter and asked to send the man a massive chocolate cake with extra chocolate sauce and ridiculously large dollops of whipped cream. He gave the waiter orders to say that the cake had been sent by the thin man at the next table. The fat man, who was just finishing eating, retucked his napkin into his collar and devoured the cake, occasionally blowing kisses in Kaczynski's direction. When Jersey got up to leave, he walked over to the fat man, who thanked him, to which he responded, Don't thank me. I was hoping that I might have the pleasure of watching you die. By the summer of 1968, the love was all but gone. The war in Vietnam was spiraling out of control. The US occupying forces were committing even more horrible atrocities. And back home, much of the anti-war left was deciding that maybe violence wasn't such a bad idea after all. Peace seemed to have failed them. And though it continued to buoy MLK's dream of equality and justice, his life had just been snuffed out by a single bullet. Warhol survived his shots, fired by Valerie Solanas. But two days later, more bullets took out Bobby Kennedy. Throughout that spring and summer, riots rocked the inner cities. Violence, rage and fear permeated the air. And the whole country seemed ready to implode. It was in this climate that Norman Mailer decided that what the world needed most from him was, drumroll please, a movie. He'd already shot two experimental films, his own take on European arthouse cinema and the American underground. They were supposed to marry Warhol to Fellini and Godard to Kenneth Anger, but mostly they were just Mailer and pals getting drunk and doing improv. The first one, Wild 90, is almost unwatchable for its terrible sound quality. And the second, Beyond the Law, in which Mailer plays an Irish detective with the most over-the-top ridiculous accent, is notable for its alternate ending. It's never been seen publicly, but it apparently descends into full-on pornography when Mailer and co-star Mickey Knox have sex with a woman before Mailer's character murders her. In explaining why he wouldn't show this ending, Mailer said... The thing is, there's a girl in it who let herself be used, and I don't think she was a reasonably good middle-class girl. And, when lost for words, he wheels out the old... It was the 60s, after all. We were ready to do anything, but then I realized afterward that in crossing that line, unless it was great art, and this wasn't great art, it was a fairly interesting, porny film, people's lives were going to be affected by it, possibly ruined. Anyway, for his new film, Maidstone, he toned down the porny elements, though of course there's a bit of that, and instead attempted to reflect the mayhem that was taking over the country. Maidstone was a much larger production than his last two movies, with a cast of almost 60 people, including his latest ex-wife, his current wife, his soon-to-be wife, 
and two other lovers for good measure. The scriptless Cinema Verité plot centers around an extremely hip and famous movie director called Norman T. Kingsley, aka the American Buñuel, played of course by you-know-who, who's working on a film about a male brothel when he decides, as one does, that it's time for him to run for president of the US. The documentary-style film follows him as he launches his campaign under vague threats of assassination by various groups, while he also pushes forward with his own film project, interviewing and treating young actresses like shit, sleeping with a number of women, and generally being a fucking asshole to everyone involved. Like in most things Mailer, Maidstone is full of ego, bravado, boxing, and rumbling speeches. Eventually, matters come to a head when a drugged Rip Torn, who hasn't slept in five days and has been coached by Norman Mailer to try to assassinate the character Norman Kingsley, whacks Mailer over the head with a hammer. A bloody Mailer then tackles him. Torn retaliates by trying to strangle him, and Mailer bites off a bit of Torn's ear. Not quite what Mailer had in mind, but by far the best, and really the only scene in the film worth watching. If you're at the place in this podcast where you'd like to see Norman Mailer get smacked in the head with a hammer, then you're in luck. Go check it out on YouTube. And if you're a pacifist who still doesn't think Mailer deserves the hammer treatment, I warn you, the next episode of Penknife might change your mind. You're just a fraud, aren't you? I'm a fraud and you're a cocksucker. Oh, no. You're the cocksucker. How did you manage to meet her? I started collecting signatures for a complaint about the untidy corridors and the faulty air conditioning. I called on her among the other tenants, then I began to date her. Wasn't that unfair? I mean, you had such an advantage over her. To a degree, yes, I did have an advantage. But before I actually met her, there was still a lot I didn't know about her life. For example, there had often been long silences in her apartment. I had heard noises I could not identify. Even what I recognized as her voice would suddenly change as if purposely controlled. At other times there were whispers and conversations which were sometimes drowned out by the radio, the record player, or the television. After you began dating her, did you tell her that you'd been listening in on her? No. Did you still go on listening to her apartment? For a while I did, but I soon stopped. I felt like a scientist who has completed his study, the specimen he has observed and recorded and analyzed for such a long time has ceased to be a mystery. Now I could manipulate her, she was in love with me. Penknife is created, written and produced by Corey Eastwood and Santiago Lemoine. Ramona Stout is our editor and narrator. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Cuellar Torres. The sound design, the music, and all things audio are the work of Diego Sanchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. Our website, penknifepodcast.com, was built by Flor Lopez. And a very special thanks to Mr. Riker Benelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. And before we let you go, we wanted to give an additional shout-out of thanks to our friend Hans de Groot, 
who's responsible for the AI that read those creepy bits of disembodied dialogue. And in case you haven't guessed it, those were taken directly from Steps, a novel by Jerzy Kaczynski, and, to give credit where credit is due, Peter Skinner. Season one of Penknife took us two years to make. We're eager to get started on season two, and trust me, we've got some really good stories about writers behaving badly. But to do so, we need your help. If you're enjoying what you're hearing and want season two to become a reality, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash penknife to support us. A cup of coffee or two a month would go a long way. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Penknife on whatever app or platform you're using. And most importantly, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend about us. And thank you for listening. You know, as I'll turn off this tape, because he's a very dull talker. And he never stops as long as anything is running.